Hi, my name is Shaman Foy, and I'm here with my co-host, Eva Potts, and this is episode seven of the Charles Bonnet Syndrome podcast. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Janet Duke, and she is a caregiver and family member of someone that has Charles Bonnet Syndrome. Actually, her mother has Charles Bonnet Syndrome, so she's going to share a little bit of her story and give a perspective from a caregiver and family member. So hello, how's everyone doing today? Hello. Doing great, Shimon. Thank you. So, so glad to have you both with us. And uh, thank you for joining us, Janet. Happy to be here. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about your journey with Charles Bonnet syndrome, maybe a little bit about your mother and how she started losing her, her eyesight and what the condition is um, that's causing her to lose her eyesight? Sure. Um, so um, there is a genetic eye disease that runs in my family, retinitis pigmentosa. My grandmother had it um, and my mother has it. And um, it basically starts off with full vision and then they start losing vision over time. My grandmother became completely blind um, at a young, young age, hers progressed, uh, pretty quickly. Um, once she became an adult, my mother started losing her sight when she was about 30. And, um, she, right now she's in her seventies and she basically has no vision. Now she does occasionally report seeing some light sometimes. Uh, she, before the pandemic started, she did have, uh, a little bit of vision um, in spots. She had um, some pinholes, is how she would describe it, where there was some vision. So if she scanned things using her eyes in bright light, she could still make out some things um, and still could get around and do some things. Uh, but during the pandemic, um, her eyesight uh, went went bad very quickly. And, um, and that's when she started, uh, exhibiting, um, symptoms of Charles Bonnet. Um, I live in another state from her. And so, uh, I did not, uh, and was not able to see, uh, her progression, um, from losing her sight so quickly during the pandemic because uh, I could not uh, go there, fly, and, and see her. So it, uh, it was an interesting uh, thing to happen um, because everything was via the phone. Uh, she does not know how to use the computer without being able to see. And uh, my stepfather also had difficulty trying to do that because I also was hoping that maybe, you know, via apps like Zoom or something, I could get a better idea of what was going on in the state of things. But uh, they couldn't they couldn't figure that out. And uh, because of being isolated and my mother um, having uh, an autoimmune uh, disorder, you know, not being able to have people around. And because of the pandemic, it was kind of a, a, a tough, tough thing to try to figure out via the phone. But the way that it all kind of came about was, um, I should let you know, my mother is a, a retired nurse. She, um, she has a medical background, very smart individual, very sharp. Um, and I was talking to her on the phone one day and she kind of just real casually said something about all of the plants in the bathroom, uh, growing too much, getting in the way. And I remember thinking that that was strange because my mother has never had house plants from the time I was young because she said that she didn't have a green thumb and they would always die. And from the last time that I had been in her apartment, there were no plants and especially not in the bathroom. So I remember thinking it was odd and saying to her, you have plants in the bathroom. And she was like, yeah, they just keep growing and that, you know, she has to keep pushing the, you know, like moving or, you know, like trying to navigate around them and it's hard with her sight. Um, 
so I thought that was strange. And I said, well, you know, move him out of the bathroom, you know? Um, and, and I just remember very vividly thinking that's very bizarre that she would say that. But um, in a later conversation, uh, we were talking and she, um, she <laughs> sounded agitated. And it's kind of a f- funny when I reflect back on it now, that, but she was kind of uh, seemed stressed and agitated. And, she, you know, of course, everybody was at that time during the pandemic with everything going on. But she just kind of was like, oh, great. A cow just came into the living room. It's going to traipse in dirt all over the carpet. And I keep trying to keep this carpet clean. And she was kind of going off. And I was like, wait a minute. What did you say? A cow came in? She's like, yeah, a cow just came into the living room and it's bringing dirt all over the carpet. And, you know, she went on to complain about trying to keep the carpet clean. And I remember like this sinking feeling in, in my, like my stomach, my heart, because I, I thought, oh my God, is she having a stroke? You know, what's happening? Cause I mean, she lives in a suburb. There's no cows around. I mean, there's no way a cow could actually walk into the living room. And so I didn't know what was happening to her. Um, so I started kind of trying to ask clarifying questions and she was insistent on this. And I thought, okay, my mom's a smart woman. Clearly there cannot be a cow in her living room. Something must be happening. And, um, my stepfather was not around. And so I felt a little bit panicky, like, uh, you know, do I need to call 911? Um, and I said, you know, I was trying to reason with her, like, mom, you know, there, there's no way a cow can be in the living room. You know, how would a cow get into the living room? And she very logically was like, well, it must have come through the sliding glass door. You know, like, you know, like, it, like of course it's, it's there, you know, it can't, must have come through. And she was very kind of focused on the dirt. Not that there was a cow in the living room, but that the dirt on the carpet. And so I remember just being like beside myself going, oh my gosh, what's happening? Uh, What do I do? You know, I started kind of asking her questions to kind of be like, is she, you know, like, you know, mom, do you know what today is? Like, you know, what's the date? Like just kind of asking those kind of questions like, is she in her right mind? And she could answer everything completely clear. And she was getting even more annoyed with me by my questions. So I knew some, I knew she was in her, you know, like right mind. She, she, she was completely, you know, <laughs> everything that I was ask her, ask her, she was fine. She was just upset about this cow bringing in dirt into the, the carpet. Um, so at that point, I really just didn't know what to do. Um, and Honestly, I don't remember a lot because I think I was so much in shock and so like, uh, I don't know, scared. I don't know what the right idea was, but maybe shock, like, what do I do? I didn't know what to do. Here we are, you know, kind of in lockdown. I'm in another state. Clearly there's no cow going into the the living room. Uh, can't get a hold of my stepfather's not there. What do I do? Um, but I can kind of share that there's bits and pieces in my memory of the, the following days and weeks. And, um, and unfortunately, it was kind of, it went in ups and downs. Because sometimes when I talked to her, um, she, she seemed to be um, of more a pleasant uh, demeanor and not so um, agitated. And other times she was completely agitated and wouldn't let me get in a word because she was very, very upset. And so um, I can kind of uh, kind of share some of the experiences that I had. But before I kind of start going down that route of like the progression and some of the things I want to share like what I did because I knew my mother was a smart person. She didn't have dementia. She was completely fine. There was, you know, nothing that I could think of 
that would cause her to be seeing cows coming into her living room. So I started Googling things. I got on my computer. I started, you know, you know, looking up all sorts of things of visual imageries, hallucinations, whatever, animals, you know, retinitis pigmentosa, people losing, just all kinds of things. And I came across Charles Benet syndrome. Um, and when I started reading it, I thought, oh my gosh, this must be what is happening to her. Because as I started looking more online um, and found YouTube things, found things on Facebook uh, and groups and just all of these uh, social media sites, uh, sites that came up on Google um, and reading and hearing about other people's experiences and came across Do Dr. Dominic Fitch um, and YouTube, uh, and all of these things I realized, and it gave me a sense of peace. Okay. This is what I'm dealing with. This, this has got to be what it is. You know, I can identify it. I know she's not losing her mind. She's not having a stroke, whatever kind of ideas that I had before I realized this is what is happening. But on the downside, there's not a lot of information out there about how to, like, there's no cure so to speak of it, uh, for it. There's no like, okay, if this is what it is, this is what you do. There was nothing like that. So even though I could say, okay, she's not crazy. This is what's happening. There was no kind of like, okay, so now this is what has to be done. And so well, I found myself, uh, I found, uh, Dr. Gary, uh, Cusick's group. And I reached out and I got involved with that. And that was of a, a tremendous help to me because then I was able to connect with other people that had Charles Benet as well as caregivers of people with Charles Benet and could share my story and relate to them and find out more about it and hear from other people and what their experiences were. And it, it helps me to realize, okay, you know, I'm not alone with this. There, my mother's not alone with this, that there are other people out there. And some of the experiences are similar. And that was helpful for me. Um, unfortunately, it also was discouraging. So it was helpful and discouraging at the same time, because, um, you know, some of the, the people with Charles Benet that I, that I met and talked to, had had it for many, many years and had found nothing really to make it go away. So then I knew, okay, what I was dealing with was probably not going to go away and that there was no real answer on, consistent answer, I should say, on, on how to, what can be done to help with it. Um, so... Gosh, I've been talking a lot. <laughs> Do you have any questions so far? No, no this is great. This is a great, uh, it, it, it kind of encompasses a lot of things. And this is probably something that happened over the course of a couple of months, right? All, oh, all yes. That, yes. That you said. I yes. do have a question. I know this was a long time ago, but uh, I, if you know, I was curious. You mentioned your mom said that there were plants in the bathroom mm -hmm. and, then that, and then that there was a cow in the living room. Do you know how, how long in between both of those incidents? Was it like something that happened like relatively quickly or was it a period of time where she was mentioning the plants and then the cow? That is, that's a great question. And, um, I actually, after things settled down, I was able to kind of get from her more information about how, when, how, and when she started kind of having these, I call them visual images. I don't, I don't like to use the word hallucinations, although I know a lot of people do because the connotation it has with, you know, maybe a psychosis or, or uh, hallucinogenic drugs or things like that, because really what I have come to realize is that it's her brain kind of misfiring these vi this visual imagery. There's nothing related to, you know, auditory or hearing. Nobody says there's no noise. There's nothing that, you know, whereas like some people, if they're hallucinating, the, you know, they hear people and see people talking to them or things like that. And nothing like that happens. It's just completely visual imagery. 
there's nothing tactile or feel or, you know, you, she, you can't touch them. You can't um, hear them. You can't smell them. It's just strictly visual imagery. And she, when I talked with her, she did mention that she had started seeing some patterns on the floor and then on the walls. So like plaid or checkers or, you know, different kinds of patterns she had started noticing uh, in, in hindsight, you know, um, by the time, and she didn't mention any of it to me. The first thing that, that made me realize that she was having any visual imagery was the plants. And um, what's kind of interesting is when I started researching Charles Binney syndrome, I realized that there are these kind of categories that people have that are common and one of them is to see patterns. And she did, that's, I think, how it kind of, quote unquote, started. Um, when I talked to her about this, when she, she had mentioned, you know, and this is later, she had mentioned her retina specialist when she would go to see him. And this was, you know, prior to the pandemic, that he had mentioned a couple of times asking her, have you started seeing any patterns or anything that that is different from what you would normally say, like seeing things? And and him asking her this when she would have checkups and she would say no, and that he would say, you know, sometimes for some people that might start happening. So that led me to believe that if he was asking her that, then he had an awareness of Charles Binet, or if it wasn't Charles Binet, he knew that some of his patients started seeing things. So, um, so that was interesting to me. And when I mentioned this to her later and said, can you please let him know that you did start seeing things? And, um, and she said that when she did schedule an appointment, she did tell him and, you know, and that I had mentioned, you know, that maybe she had Charles Binet and all this stuff. And he, and he was like, yeah, that's what it is. But kind of very like lackadaisical, I guess, about it. Like, yeah. It's got Charles Binet. And I was like, well, what did he say after that? And he was like, yeah, that, I mean, that's what it is, but there's nothing you can do about it. So that was it. So, she, and therein lies the frustration. Right. So she was kind of like, okay, well, you're not telling me anything I already don't know. My, you had asked me this and this happened. My mother, my daughter is the one that told me that's what it is. And so I'm telling you what it is. And you're like, yeah, that's what it is. You know, and then they drop the ball and, and, and then that's it because, yeah, because there's, they don't know, you know, there's nothing, I guess, out there to kind of say, okay, so now you've got this. These are some things that can help. These are some, you know, experiences. These are people or support groups you can go to. This is, you know, things that caregiver, there is no guidance, no information. It was just, Yep, that's what you have. You know, you can schedule your next appointment on your way out. You know, have a nice day. Yeah, good luck with all that. Right, right? good luck with all of that. Because mm -hmm. and and I and I in some ways I get that because you know having some you know background working in the medical field, you know, if if doctors aren't trained on something and and know how to treat it because that's their job, right, is to diagnose and treat it, then you know that's okay, that's what you've got, the diagnostic, but there's no treatment for it. So, you know, all right, there you and go. This is, and this is where the medical field in general has failed individuals with Charles Binet syndrome because they're not teaching any coping mechanisms to go with the diagnosis. Um, and yeah, it, the research is relatively new, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, new from Dominic Fitch. But it is out there, and it's whether or not these neuro-ophthalmologists, ophthalmologists, anyone who's working with low vision, onset blindness, anybody who works with people who have low vision, they're not continuing their homework and research on, okay, well, you know, I've had one or two people with Charles Binet syndrome, How, you know, let me look it up and see if there's anything that I can help them with right. and, and reach back out to them. I was speaking with a neurologist one day who actually was scratching his head saying, wow, <clears throat> excuse me, please. I wonder how many people I've had walk out of my office and I didn't 
I, I let them walk away thinking they had something else wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother was slapped with a dementia diagnosis, which she didn't have. Mm-hmm. And, and then and that's the problem that we're having as well. Thank goodness, you know, your mother could pass those assessments. My mother was given a dementia diagnosis without an assessment. And it's very frustrating when people in the medical community are not taking the time to even eliminate the other problems that could go on with the hallucinations, as you say, and I as well don't like the word hallucinations, but we're stuck with it because the World Health Organization decided to put that word in their ICD-11 diagnosis, which thank goodness we got that much. Mm -hmm. It's recognized now by who, but it's not recognized yet fully in the United States for you go to a neuro-ophthalmologist, you're diagnosed, okay, here we go. Here's a, this isn't going to take away your symptoms, but here are some treatment options. You know, people are going to cognitive behavioral therapy. There are those different coping mechanisms, but the problem is there's no research. Nobody's really digging in and researching this to figure out, okay, how can we help these people except in the UK? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately my mother was, uh, diagnosed, well, I don't know if they actually did the official diagnosis of being psychotic, uh, and she was hospitalized, um, and oh, put on antipsychotics. And, um, and the reason for that is because it made her, I, I, you know, have what I would consider to be like a psychotic episode because it got so bad that it started making her crazy. Um, and so, because even though it started with patterns, and then became plants, then became animals. Okay. So she, um, she started not only seeing like regular animals, like a dog, you know, puppies, or she started seeing like mythical creatures. Um, and one of like, um, one of them that she started talking about was, uh, I guess what looked to be like a large stuffed caterpillar, but it was rainbow colored and, you know, when a call and, you know, these, the, she would explain these, these creatures that were in her living room and it was, you know, it was bizarre. It was just bizarre that her brain was creating this, these visual images that were so just kind of, you know, like the creativity of it all, you know, like, um, you know, it was just amazing when she would describe some of these things. Um, sometimes I, I wish that I would have recorded uh, or or knew how to record some of these phone conversations so that I could remember all of it now because she doesn't remember a lot of it. And I don't know whether uh, that's because it's too upsetting or, you know, because right now she's on um, a lot of medication and she was put on a lot of medication to try and stop the visual hallucinations, if you call it, or or images, because it upsets her because it went from the, the, the animals and the, the, what I call mythical creatures to them becoming people. And that's when it started getting bad because the people she, and this is still what is really strange to me about this syndrome is that she would see these people in her living room and she believed that they were really there and she's a smart person and she can be logical, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, mom, you you can't see, you know, you, you have a hard time seeing, and yet you're seeing these people crystal clear that couldn't possibly be in your, your living room. And she was insistent that they were there And I would continually try to argue with her. It's like, those are, that's your, your brain creating visual images. And it, I think it just upset her and upset her brain and tricked her and and all this kind of stuff that she had a hard time differentiating what was real or not. And it doesn't make any sense to now she, she knows now after you know, she got put on this medication and then all of that, you know, that, that period or something ended. If she sees 
people because she, she, if they reduce her dosage, they come back. I call them the people. <laughs> are the how are the people? Are the people there? Um, she um, she knows they're not real. She knows that it's her brain, the visual imagery. At this point, she she can differentiate that, but it still upsets her, and she doesn't like it. She doesn't want the people to be around. And I guess I can understand that because when it got so bad, and here's what's interesting too, and when I when I read and study up on Charles Binet, this also seems to be a pattern, is that people who do have the the hallucinations of people, seeing actual people, the people that they see tend to be dressed in kind of uniforms or costumes or 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 things from certain time periods and uh, like usually have some sort of headgear or hats or things like that that was almost that was always the case with the people when I would ask her to describe the people that she was seeing you know they would be you know soldiers in uniform um, construction workers uh, people from like the 20s like when she would describe them to me, that's always would be kind of the case, which is very strange also. <laughs> like if, if your brain's going to create these visual images that it's not, you know, people you know, people that you see around, you know, people as if they, it's creating these completely different people that you don't know in costumes <laughs> and uniforms and things. It's, it's very bizarre. Um, and like the mythical creatures, she would describe some of the, these costumes or whatever you would call them, the clothing and, and, and outfits or things. And it was, it sounded fantastic, sounded, you know, like a costume design for a film <laughs> and, um, clear as day, she would see these people, but where it became really problematic. And I do believe, um, that stress and anxiety can can play a part in the visual imagery like it um, can make things make the brain misfire in a way that the the images can be scary be, and then that can ramp up more anxiety and stress which can then it's like a vicious cycle make them even more scary and that, because that's what I saw happening with my mom during that period is that she was getting agitated about all of these animals and, and everything bringing in dirt and getting all over the carpet and stuff and trying to deal with that. And it was in the COVID pandemic and fear and anxiety from that and, all, and lockdown, being isolated, all of these different things, watching the news, all of the stuff that was going on in the world. It just was ramping up her anxiety, her stress, you know, not having social outlets, all of these things that you know, it created like this perfect storm where it just made all of these things worse. And it, and by them was making her worse, which was making that worse. And it become this, became this vicious cycle because the people started becoming scary. Um, and, and that, for example, um, she would get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and there would be a man standing in the hallway. Now, I don't know about you, but that would scare me. If I went to get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and a man was standing between me and the bathroom in the hallway, a man that I don't know, you know, that would be scary for me. I would fear for my safety. And those are the kinds of things that started happening. She was afraid to get undressed, to take a shower because these people would be watching her. They're in the room, you know, um, and then it got worse to where she believed that they were that she saw them stealing things from her. And, and then uh, it got to the point, which is where it really, as a caregiver, you know, this is, of course is very upsetting. You have this loved one that's experiencing all this. You can't do anything about it. Um, where it got really bad for me in terms of me coping was when she started calling the police. She started calling the police on the people that weren't there. <laughs> and so what would happen is, for example, she saw construction workers coming into the apartment 
and bringing in tools and like they were going to tear down the wall. And she got upset. She, you know, they were going to tear down the, the drywall or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not there. I'm in a completely another state. I don't know what's happening. All I know is after the fact, when I would talk to them or my stepfather or police or whoever I was would be talking to, is she thought they were going to tear down the wall. She was telling them to go away. They weren't going away. She calls the police. When the police come out, of course, there's she. They see no construction workers there. She says, "Oh, they left." And then, of course, they tell my stepfather, "You know, you need to take her to the emergency room." Mm-hmm. So then they take her to the emergency room, and my mother, being the smart person that she is, you know, they ask her questions, and I don't, you know, I wasn't there, but whatever results is, there's nothing wrong with her, and they send her home. Right. And it became this back and forth, this game. Police are called. Police tell my stepfather, bring her to the emergency room, brings her to the emergency room. Emergency room says nothing wrong with her. Send her home. And he was losing his mind trying to deal with it. I was losing my mind trying to deal with it. I didn't know what to do. And when I tried to talk logically to her, she would get so upset. And... And then when it came to them stealing things and stuff, you know, and in my mind, I knew that it was just her, vi- the visual images that it wasn't real. And yet I said, couldn't seem to convince her of that at that point. I think she was just so out of her mind from dealing with it constantly that she couldn't, she could no longer like understand that it wasn't real and was reacting you know, to her appropriately by yelling, telling them to, to get out, go away. And if they're not listening, calling the police on them. Mm. And, um, I eventually wound up having to, um, you know, and at this point I still couldn't, um, go there. Um, the state was locked down, um, you couldn't fly in unless you showed all these things for COVID and stuff like that. Um, There's all these restrictions. I couldn't go into the hospitals. I couldn't go into the doctor's offices. You know, even, even if I was able to physically get there, I would not be able to accompany her anywhere. You know, I, I couldn't get, you know, HIPAA release. It was just, it was a perfect storm of a situation of on trying to how to deal with all of this. And so eventually, uh, when I found out that she had picked up a baseball bat to try to um, hit the people to get them, you know, to get out and uh, was then destroying things and accidentally hit my stepfather that I realized that, okay, now she's hurting other people. That's, that's when it's got to stop. And so I provided my stepfather, you know, I said, obviously, when you're taking her to the emergency room, whatever is going on, she's saying whatever she needs to say to to leave, because she's smart enough to know that she says certain things, they're going to hospitalize her and she doesn't want to be hospitalized. So you're going to have to tell you're going to have to be the one you're going to have to stay in there and you're going to have to tell exactly what's going on so that they'll listen. And I told him, what you have to say is that she's a danger to herself or to others because at this point she is hitting you, right? And that's what finally um, made a difference and that they didn't just turn her and send her back home. And, you know, that's when psychiatrists got involved. But of course, the psychiatrist that I dealt with had no background knowledge or training of Charles Benet either. I had to be the ones to teach them, to send them information on it. And of course, you can find this stuff online now and everything. So that was helpful in my credibility instead of just, you know, saying this is what it is. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, lady, you know, you're crazy too. Um so then they could, you know, educate themselves as doctors on how to deal with it. But once again, there's really no, you know, quote unquote treatment for it. 
And at that point, they put her on a uh, antipsychotic drug, which of course then stopped the um, visual images because it just dulled your brain to such an extent that, you know, if your if your brain's going to be misfiring, you know, in that cortex or wherever it is because of you know no longer having that that sight there or however it, you know the brain does this. Um, you know, it's going to dull it so much that it's not happening. And that's what happened. And um, she continues to be on the medication. They've greatly reduced it. Um, so she's not drugged up all the time. But if they reduce it too much, then the quote unquote people return. And that upsets her and she doesn't like it. So she stays on the medication. And I hear that a lot. <clears throat> and of course, that happened to my mother as well what we found out with the course of treatment, they kept giving her antipsychotics uh, and all it really did. It worked for a little while, then it would fail. She became a really um, high fall risk. So what we're hearing, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional. I have a background in psychology, but I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, <clears throat> not a psychiatrist. I always make that disclaimer. What we're hearing from people in our support groups and their caretakers, much like yourself, is that a lot of these antipsychotic drugs are given, yet at some point they begin to fail. And But during the treatment, during the time that they're put on these antipsychotic meds, they become a really high fall risk. They're, like you said, dulled. Um, oh, the for brain is sure she's a high fall yeah. risk now. Yeah. 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 And um, do you mind if I, and you can share or not, could you, do you mind sharing which drug she's on? Uh, that, Respiridone. Yep. That's what they gave my mother. Yep. And, and it actually, another thing we're finding through conversations, and this is just through the support group. This isn't anything, uh, medical data. Well, it is data, but it's, it's not being recorded in the medical community at this time. People in our support group that have been put on the Respiridol find that it led to different problems um, psychologically that, uh, you know, that was dulled for a while. And, and I just wonder, I know I digress here. It's, it's almost like a double-edged sword. You give it to them because it helps to calm them. It alleviates the, the nightmarish visions that they're having. And you're, you're relieved for them until it doesn't any longer. And they can either increase the dosage and then you've got somebody you can't really, my mother was completely blind. I had to transport, I had to transfer her from the bed to the bathroom. And just like your mom, she gets in the bathroom, there's five or 12 people standing there. Who wants to go to the bathroom with 12 people staring at you? Right. And, or to get her in the shower, really to get her to go anywhere that she would be, <clears throat> excuse me, blocked by something or some type of vision. And even with this Respiridol, it, it seemed to start to wear off. And I have to agree with you. It's, it's almost as if, if we don't find a way to help people through this, if we don't find a way and research isn't done to really, to really help these individuals, you know, it, it, it becomes a dangerous situation where we're giving them antipsychotic drugs for something that isn't a mental illness. Right. It, it's this physiological condition that the brain, the visual cortex continues to fire these images. And it's a, it's a brain thing. And it's so frustrating. I guess where I'm trying to get to here is at what point, you know, do we, do we start looking at this and, and research is done and the medical community starts to pay attention. If, if, if the numbers are correct, which in the UK, they're finding that they're one out of every three people with low vision or onset blindness begin to develop Charles Binet syndrome. That's a lot of people in the United States. If we're looking at the numbers are inaccurate because they're all based on surveys and what the medical community reports, but 37 million Americans that are low, that are legally blind. If we take one out of every three of those people, that's huge. And, and so you're talking about all these people who are suffering that are probably going to lead them to another mental health condition. Yeah. You know, anxiety, like you said, anxiety, yeah. um, you know, PTSD mm -hmm. from experiencing these frightening hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And so as a caretaker, I, I feel your pain because it's like, okay, 
who's going to, what's finally going to happen where my mother doesn't have to pop a pill to feel better. She's not feeling like herself because she has to take this antipsychotic medication. I mean, she's a nurse for goodness mm-hmm. sake. You know, she, she knows what's going on. She, my mother was highly intelligent as well. She, she knew this isn't real, but wow, you know, and, and so I tried to step in her shoes and say, okay, what if this was happening to me? And somebody was trying to convince me that that man's not standing in front of me in the hallway while I'm trying to go to the bathroom. And then you hope that the coping mechanisms will help. And you can just hear the frustration from you to me to where I'm, I'm sure Shimon has some too, where you just, you're wondering how long is it going to take for a society that has so much advanced technology that we're trying to find a cure for cancer, that we're working, you know, we, we found something to help people with autism. This condition is 300, almost 300 years old. And we're no further along than they were in 1760. Yeah. You know, except, except, except for the development of respiratol and antipsychotics and, and, you know, but we're not do we're, we're treating it as an orphan diagnosis when millions of people are suffering from it. And, and honestly, I think a lot of it also has to do with that. Um, most of the sufferers are people that you would consider to be elderly or a lot older mm-hmm. population. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, people, it's easier to say, oh, they've got dementia or Alzheimer's or there's something wrong with their brain or, you know, that sort of thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. until I was in um, Gary Cusick's group that I learned that young people who are losing their sight also can get Charles Binet. And that's mm-hmm. actually, you know, when, pe- when, when you have a young person, you know, that is experiencing these, these hallucinations or visual images, I think that's when people will be like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, because all of those other things can't be potentially, you know, tied into it. And, you know, they're, a lot of older people, they're not working, they're not, you know, out in, in, in society interacting, having jobs, all these sorts of things. So um, I think that's why it doesn't get maybe the attention that it should, uh, because a lot of people that are losing their sight, you know, it it's, gets worse as you get older. Um, but I did go to a, um, a uh, and I can't think of off the top of my head what the organization was, but I went to a conference with my mom um, when I was a young adult in San Francisco where uh, it was for people who are blind or, or have a visual, um, you know, disease. And I remember going to a lot of the retinitis pigmentosa, you know, research conference seminars and different things like that, because at that, at that point I was really hoping that there would be some sort of cure found for it so that my mother, you know, could, could not, could, could retain some of her sight and her lifestyle and so forth. And I remember meeting some people that were my age, um, you know, which at that time was in my, my early twenties at this conference that had, that had been losing their vision due to retinitis pigmentosa and I had, um, you know, and it, it, it was a full spectrum, but there were some that, that had very little to, you know, no sight. And I can't help but wonder, you know, are those people out there, those young adults that have Charles Monet, because really those people I think would be the ones that would be great spokespersons for this, for people to pay attention. We actually have several people in our support group now, Janet, um, in their twenties that, um, that are reporting Charles Binet syndrome. And the unfortunate part is, you know, we have dementia and Alzheimer's for the older people to slap them with that diagnosis. And then for the younger people, it's schizophrenia or some other type of mental illness. So instead of paying attention to Charles Binet and their low vision or onset blindness, uh, we're finding that what reported that these individuals report that have been in our support group, uh, we have one young man from Canada and, um, he reports that his parents were pretty, uh, they were not supportive and, you know, you, his behavior was punished. Um, you know, quit, quit lying. Your, is your imagination is so great. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of 
listening to the child, it was, it was considered, oh, he's got a, a wild imagination. Oh, he's got a, no, that's just an imaginary friend. No, your kid's seeing somebody all the way to, if you listen to our podcast with Jonathan Ward from the UK, actually, shocked to find out, um, or he, and he reported that as a child, he suffered from Charles Bonet. On the other end of that spectrum, he had very supportive parents. His his story is very moving. Hmm. And so you're talking about somebody who's now, I don't know how old Jonathan is. Um, I, I, I'm not good at <laughs> gauging people's ages by just by looking at them. But if you listen to that podcast, you'll find that his parents helped him cope. And, you know, one of the things about being a caretaker is there, there's always that slippery slope of, do I try and be logical with them? You can't buy into the hallucinations. You can't buy into the visions because you're not, that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. and, and you try to be logical with them and say, you know, all I can say is mom, because that was my experience. Mom, they're really not there. If they were there, I would tell you, I wouldn't want anything to hurt you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't let anything happen to you. And do you think I'd really let th this happen in your home or in, in my home? And, you know, there's that very, very slippery slope of, you know, what are they hearing all the time? Are they hearing that they're crazy? Mm -hmm. Are they being whispered in the ear? Oh, you're crazy. You know, that was being done to my mother um, once in a while from other family members. Uh, was There was no compassion for what she was going through. And when that gets whispered in the ear of somebody who's dealing with this, it's not helpful from what we're learning from what I learned on a personal level. And that's all I can really speak to because again, I'm not a doctor and I'm sure that, you know, they hear that quite often. And so people tend not to report that they're going through. There are so many people who don't report this. We have someone in our support group. You may have met her. I don't know. And I can't really share her name has had Charles Benet syndrome for 17 years, but did not report it to her own spouse for five years. Right. Mm -hmm. And because she was terrified of the stigma of being called mad, crazy, you name it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's difficult for them as well. So you can only imagine a child fearful of what they're experiencing. And I know in the UK at one point, the youngest person they found that was experiencing or reporting those symptoms was seven years old. Um, I had a parent here in my area who reported that her child she felt that this is what her child had, but would not, could not find anybody to properly diagnose him. Started at seven and unfortunately could not handle the hallucinations, could not handle what happened to him. And he took his own life at 12. Wow. So, you know, not paying attention to what's happening to these children is, you know, in this day and age, once again, I have to go back to with all the technology we have now, this, this diagnosis is out there. People are hearing about it. Well, then medical community, pay attention, you know, pay attention, go back and learn about it. If, if, if you don't know what to do about it, how about starting some research, Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. Yale, Harvard, let's go all the big medical schools here. I challenge them to start doing something about this because we have an entire population of individuals who are being ignored and mistreated, misdiagnosed. And that's, one of the reasons that we're doing this, Shimon and, and, and me, because, you know, it's, it's so frustrating to have all of these beautiful technologies at our disposal, all of this, all these intelligent minds, all these creative medical individuals who can find cures for other things. How about somebody pay attention to this and, and help us? And that's what we're looking for. This is why we're doing this. Bring education and awareness to the general public, the medical community, to please start paying attention to Charles Benet syndrome. Because it's not just for the elderly. It is indiscriminate. It knows no age, no gender, no ethnicity. Yeah, the only commonality is that you had sight and you start losing it. And I tell Thank people you. that I'm always educating people about it. And it always surprises me when somebody knows about it. And, you know, and I'll say, oh, well, you know, my mom has this thing called Charles Benet. Where she's, oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw something, you know, and, and, you know, every once in a while I'll run into somebody and I'll be like, oh, you know about it, you know. And then, but of course, 95% of the time, you know, I have to explain what it is and, and so forth and say, you know, you can Google it. This is whatever. But it only happens in people 
that had sight and start to lose it. And it's something in the brain where, you know, you're no longer whatever seeing those things. It's doing misfires. You know, I try to explain in basic layman terms as much as I can understand, you know, to say that. But but the fact that it doesn't happen in people that never had any sight, that right there, you know, should be be a, a, a clue for research, right? And and how to and mm-hmm. how this happens. Um but and even just the patterns are so interesting to me. The patterns, I mean, in in what the visual images are, um, mm-hmm. is so interesting. How the commonalities and themes of of these images is interesting to me. I agree with you. And you know, another thing that Dr. Cusick and and Shimon and and many of us have discussed is, you know, I think that when research is really, and I'm, I'm really, you know, ever hopeful uh, that this, we're going to hear about this one day and it's going to be recognized. I truly feel that at some level, we're going to, at some point, we're going to find that there's a spectrum based on personality type, Mm -hmm. you know, lifestyle experience, life experience, and how those hallucinations or those visual um, episodes affect individuals, their severity of them, longevity of them. Um, what type of experience they have. My mother would see writings on the wall. Now, my mother was an avid reader. Mm. She, you, anything she could get her hands on to read. My mother wrote, was a writer. She wrote poetry. She wrote, she's written three children's books that we're hoping to get published. She was just an, she, she thirst for knowledge. <clears throat> she read the dictionary. I don't know how many times those big, thick Webster dictionaries. And she would see writing and she also spoke Latin and she also spoke Greek. So sometimes the, the wording on her wall would be either in Greek or Latin. And I would always know she was so quiet, but I would see her staring up at the wall and going back and forth. And I'm like, mom, she goes, Shh, I'm reading. Mm-hmm. So it's pleasant. But from, again, from memory, because, you know, my mother learned Greek. There wasn't Babel back then. Mm-hmm. My mom had to learn Greek from Greek to English and English to Greek dictionary. Right, right. right. And from being connected to the Greek community, how ambitious is that? Mm-hmm. And uh, was fluent in it. So, you know, it's, um, there's so much that needs to be done. And, and, and you're right. I, I think that we're going to find so many correlations, but I think it's, I, I think it's going to be so interesting to find out the comparisons of life events. So I don't know if your mother was, you know, and your mother's much younger than my mother was, but my mother experienced World War II. So some of her hallucinations were the Nazi soldiers that she was fearful of, you know, the blackouts in the uh, city. She was from uh, Jersey City and they would have blackouts in the city. And so sometimes she felt she was just in blackout conditions. Yeah, no, um, it, it definitely has something to do with her life experiences for sure. I mean, it's not like she's going to see, you know, things in Portuguese on the wall because she doesn't, you know, know part Portuguese. Right. And this, and my mother, no. my mother, you know, was, uh, was married or worked, uh, is a, a nurse in the military hospital. So seeing soldiers, you know, oh. around what was, was not something that you would, you know, find unusual. And she also did report, uh, patients, there would be patients, patients on gurneys, patients, you know, and, and people in, in patient gowns, you know, all of this sort of thing. So it definitely draws, you know, whatever that is in the brain, that prior knowledge or different things, it's drawing on that. It's not going to create something that is completely outside of somebody's experience, like totally. I agree. And can, may I ask, and if you, if you want to share, where is she now in her journey with Charles Binet syndrome? So, so she, she, when I ask her every once in a while, cause she doesn't really bring it up or like to talk about it. Um, she, um, she doesn't see the people, um, because she's on the risperidone. Um, however, as you mentioned, the risperidone has other nasty side effects and she's been experiencing those, uh, some bad side effects from it besides being sleeping a lot of the time because she's drugged up. Um, but she has some other medical issues, um, that I think are making all of this, you know, compounded. And I mean, it's losing your sight is already something hard to try to manage and deal with 
you know, when you've been, you know, had your sight for so long and an independent person, you know, all these kind of things. And then suddenly, you know, very quickly losing it all along with medical conditions, along with this, she just doesn't have, to me, a very good quality of life. And she's dealing with a lot of bad side effects. And it's really, as a caregiver, it's really upsetting because, you know, obviously I would like for her to be off some of these medications and to be able to have a better quality of life, but she doesn't want the people to come back. I understand that. And, and, you know, you, when you say quality of life, they're the magic words right there, quality of life. And, and when the, and when people, I don't think there's ever a good time to lose your vision, just as you stated. Right. And it is such a significant loss. It's, it's like anything that we lose of significance and it's, there's a grieving period. And we've talked about this on our podcast before that it's not just, you know, the person losing their vision. It's that mother you used to know that isn't there anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. It's that person that we knew that had sight. And as they lost their vision, they've turned into a different person. And then with Charles Binet, they almost become somebody you don't recognize. And, and, and you're, you're more protective of them because you're so worried about what their brain is doing to them. And it's, and it's, it is so frustrating as, as a caretaker to not have answers, to not know what to do. You feel so helpless. And that's why I'm always pleading with the meta. And and when I finally realized, well, pleading and, you know, shouting out into the universe isn't going to help me. I got to do something about it, which is the whole reason for the nonprofit that we're launching. I'm hoping and praying that it makes a difference eventually. And for this very reason, because of people like Janet, because of people like Shimon, because of people who are suffering with Charles Benet, like my mother, because that quality of life, it doesn't just affect the person with Charles Benet, it trickles down to the caretaker, the family members, because you become, you become enmeshed in what they're losing. And then it's and it is a huge fear factor. And we don't want to live with fear. We don't want fear to be part of anything that we deal with, but you can't help but be concerned about what's going to happen to your loved one. Okay, I'm going to give them the Risperidol, but look at what it's, look at what the Risperidol is doing to mom, right? But what's the alternative? Here we are. Here we are without any of the answers. And I'm hoping that one person in the medical community is going to hear Janet talk and they're going to say, wow, I need to do something to help Janet's mom. If nothing else, your story or other stories that people have told on our podcast ignite that passion in somebody to go do something about this. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, Janet. Uh, I'm curious, what advice would you give to other caregivers or family members or people that have Charles Bonet that are listening? Um, well, it did help me to go to the um, the support group. For you know, I did that for a while just to be able to talk to other people that are going through the same thing, to talk to other individuals suffering from Charles Bonet to to learn their viewpoint, to help me understand my, my mom's experience, to read up on things, to do research, just to learn about it and things. And then to, it helped me to also talk about it and educate other people. It, because I think talking about it and educating other people, you know, in the hopes that maybe it makes a difference, but it also helps to um, you know, to, to put it out there and explain to other people because it, it's, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, how to explain it, but to, to let people know that this is happening and it affects, it affects me, it affects the caregiver as well, because, you know, as Eva said, you know, it, the, the fear, the anxiety, that the things that affect you as a caregiver, um, are real as well, especially if you are going to have to, you know, you're, you, there's the emotional part of knowing what they're going through and trying to, but there's also anxiety, a fear of, of how to help them, what to do with it. How is this going to affect your life? How are you going to pay for somebody to be there when this can't be done? They already can't see, you know, it, it, you're dealing with somebody who's already having a hard time losing their sight and the change in lifestyle and quality of life is somebody who can't 
do what they used to do. And that's already upsetting, but now dealing with this as well and knowing that people might think that they're crazy or that they don't want other people to know because they think they're all crazy and there's nothing, you know, just all of those sorts of things. Talk about it, learn about it, get support from others and know, let other people know what's going on with you with it as well. Because um, even though it's not happening to me, um, it definitely affects me. And, um, you know, that the other thing we're finding out about caregivers is the lack of sleep. <laughs> and if the individual, um, well, I'll just speak from experience. I probably, the entire time my mother lived with me, and even when I would take care of her on weekends when she was in her own home or when I would go take care of her, there, there was no rest, there was no sleep. And, uh, because she wasn't sleeping or you would hear her start to stir and wonder, okay, is this getting ready to go into a, a full, you know, full blown episode. And I would have, I did have in-home health care for a while. And uh, I, I would think, oh, this is going to be my time to, to get some rest. But if the caretaker was having a hard time or mom wanted me, I had to be front and center because I wasn't going to not be present that would throw her into another episode. So there's the lack of sleep. You're, you're right. The emotional toll that it takes on a, a caregiver. It's a lot. Yeah. My mom fired the in-home health care I hired. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that a lot too. And yeah. honestly, I think it's out of fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, but if they don't understand and, 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 you know, that's the other thing, this is where all this training starts from the top down and, you know, in-home healthcare, even even police officers, not knowing about what Charles Benet is, and and they're of course they're immediately going to go to psychosis. Mm -hmm. They're not even going to consider Charles Benet syndrome because they've been called to a location. They're not finding anything. My mother did that once or twice, and they get there and there's nothing there. Of course, they're going to revert to that. Police, you know, police officers, mm -hmm. anybody in the emergency response community needs to be needs to be educated about Charles Benet syndrome, what it is, oh, this could be what we're dealing with. Then they don't have to cart them to the hospital because many people with Charles Benet syndrome, if they're taken by ambulance to a hospital, that short ambulance ride or however long it is, can be just another stage for all this to be intensified. Right. And many, many people have ended up in a psychotic break by the time they get to that, in, that facility. And because they're so terrified, they're in a moving vehicle with somebody they don't know, they're being poked and prodded. They're, you know, it's gotta be the most frightening thing. And if they're blind, being blind alone is traumatic right. to be in thrown into a situation where you don't know what's going on. You don't understand what's happening to you. And you're right. And let's even not even touch on our assisted living facilities that are probably packed with individuals that have Charles Benet syndrome, but they're given these really strong antipsychotics to knock them out because they, the staff can't deal, won't deal because they're not educated. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to help them. So they knock them out. I know I used to be, I used to work in an assisted living facility. Now I, had I known what I know now, not that I think it could change a lot, but yeah, you put them into a psychiatric unit or into an assisted living facility and they just knock them out. Yeah. Never, never to be dealt with. And yeah, I, I'll get off my soapbox, Shimon, go ahead. And, and you know, there's no easy answers. There's no magic pill. Currently, there's no cure. So all of these things are frustrating. And it's like, it'd be nice to tie this conversation up with a nice bow at the end and say, you do this, you do A, B, and C, but it, it really isn't. And it's, uh, and it's difficult, but by you, Janet, telling people that you see in your community or wherever you go about Charles Bonet and by you sharing your story here, because it is your mother's story, but it's your story too, because you're a family member and, and a caregiver. It, it really it really helps to to bring awareness and a lot of the things that you said are similar to my situation for for my loved one that has uh charles Monet and for many others also there are a lot of commonalities and uh it just seems that your mother's case is a more severe case and that tends to uh that that tends to happen so uh i'm, I'm glad that she's she's still 
taking it one day at a time. You are too. Hopefully your stepfather is too. And just because it's the way it is today doesn't mean it's not going to get better tomorrow. And uh, I just think that talking about it and supporting them the best way you can, maybe just listening, maybe you got to take a break, whatever the case may be, I think it can just be a, uh, a helpful thing just to get the word out. Well stated, Shimon. But uh, thank you so much for, for sharing, sharing the story. And um, is there anything else you would like to say in, in closing? Gosh, no, it's just, um, it is, it, it's a, it's a lot. Um, if people come across this, you know, um, and hear this, I, hopefully it can, you know, I guess ignite a passion to do something too. It, it is a difficult thing to think that there's all those people out there suffering and all of the loved ones that are suffering with them. And hopefully, hopefully one day the, uh, somebody will find an answer to help with this. You know, Jan and I also want to give you a compliment because so many caregivers don't take the time or the energy to investigate instead of just, you know, you know, um, flicking your mom off as, oh, she's okay. Now she's lost her mind. She's crazy. Oh, okay. We're gonna have to do something. Whether you actually took the time to figure out what was going on with your mom. And, you know, a lot of times we don't get credit for being caregivers. It's, it's a, it's, it's not a field we're in to get any kind of recognition. Uh, we certainly aren't doing it for the glorification of being a caregiver, but we, you know, we do it because we love the people that we love because we want to be there for them. And so I, every time I talk to a caregiver, I, I just want to say thank you to them because thank you for recognizing this because each time a caregiver recognizes Charles Benet syndrome, there's one more person who's been validated in their journey with this, you know, and there's one more person who maybe we can help one day because we've given them that recognition that they're not crazy, that they've not gone mad. So thank you for being a vigilant caretaker. Thank you very much.